Hey, Franz. We're welcoming folks back here to Raise Green Podcasts for our second piece of the episode with our distinguished guest, Suvenians, an internationally renowned climate negotiator, educator, and problem solver extraordinaire. For more than 25 years, Sue Benias served as the lead climate lawyer for the United States State Department. In that capacity, she played a central role in the negotiation of all the major climate agreements, including the Paris Agreement. She was also a deputy legal advisor, and in that capacity covered U.S. treaty practice, the law of the sea, Somali piracy, Latin America, human rights, and criminal law. In the last episode, uh, we covered about half of the definitions of things that come up in conversation with Sue, and this time we'll cover the next half. Uh, the climate negotiations take on a whole jargon that has, that's actually quite commonplace for those of the, us that worked to negotiate pieces of the global climate framework, but is also largely indecipherable without that niche exposure. Uh, so to pick up on some of the further definitions, Matt, can you kick us off? After many more attempts to come up with an inclusive, durable, and ambitious climate framework that includes all countries, unlike Kyoto with its developing and developed countries, in 2015, the Paris Agreement was adopted at COP21, and all 197 countries have now signed and joined on to this agreement. What makes the Paris Agreement unique is the idea of nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, These are the climate targets, and every country submits plans every five years about how they will reduce carbon emissions to meet the Paris Agreement goal of, quote, well below two degrees C warming by 2100. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, is an intergovernmental economic organization with 37 member states that was founded in 1961 to stimulate economic progress and world trade. These countries are sometimes synonymous with so-called developed countries. And you'll also hear us refer to delegations often in the discussion. This is a group of diplomats that represent a country at a given meeting. And these delegations come together in negotiations, an ongoing process that starts with a mandate that all countries agree to. For example, the Durban mandate was concluded with the Paris Agreement. Some negotiations stemming from the Paris Agreement are continuing today. The major economies are a loose collective of about the top 17 or roughly 20 or so global economies which account for roughly 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions. During the Obama administration, we, the U.S., would convene what was usually a biannual meeting of this group, plus a few observers from other key countries in the negotiations in a meeting we called the Major Economies Forum. This was an important informational dialogue, uh, informal dialogue, rather, that happened outside of the UNFCCC negotiations and resulted in many landing zones on tough issues like differentiation, for example. We'll also talk about parties, and parties are synonymous with countries in this case that are a party to an agreement. So Sue shares four lessons to negotiating international treaties where actors are also referred to, and those actors are organizations, not people. You know, my understanding is coming into this year, which was supposed to be COP26 in Glasgow, 
parties to the Paris Agreement were supposed to be submitting revised and uh, resubmitted targets for the 2030 timeframe. And those nationally determined contributions were supposed to be uh, due this year in 2020. But due to COVID and the, the conference being delayed, what do you think the impact of that delay and really COVID generally will be on COP26's NDCs for countries? So in, in Paris, which was in 2015, the thought until the very last second was that the agreement would not enter into force until after 2020. That had kind of been the prevailing wisdom. So at the last second, that limitation was taken out of the Paris Agreement. But before it was taken out, and when everyone thought it wouldn't be enforced, the, um, they inserted a couple provisions into the, the decision coming out of Paris, because the thought was, you know, 2015 is very far, or I should say 2025 and 2030 are very far away from 2015. So we should pick a, a date in between, you know, 2015 now and the late 2020s or 2030, when we should ask countries or request countries to come back and do something more. So for those countries that had picked 2025 targets, including the U.S., the request was come in with your next NDC, presumably a 2030 NDC, although it didn't say that. Um, and for those countries that had a 2030 target, which is basically 15 years from then, uh, come in in 2020 and either like restate that target or, better yet, update it in some way. Okay, so 2020 has been thought of as the year when countries would either, you know, put in their new NDC or update or restate or whatever their existing NDC. So um, COVID has definitely had a kind of a multifaceted <laughs> effect on the NDC issue. And I'll try to divide it into maybe three pieces. So I think, you know, one is like a logistical impact. As you mentioned, the COP that was supposed to take place this year has been delayed until the end of next year because of COVID and, you know, the need to sort of delay these big conferences that um, attract thousands of people. It's probably not an entirely bad thing. I mean, it doesn't seem great at first glance that the COP has been delayed, but, you know, given that it was obviously necessary to do, you can actually look at, for some silver linings. Probably countries were not going to do that much this year in terms of upgrading their NDCs. A lot of the major economies were not really on track to do that. So it, it might have been like not that great, actually, for the COP if it had been this year and not that many countries, especially the, the major ones, had stepped up. Um, so it might actually be a blessing in disguise that there's more time to work on countries or for countries to work on their NDCs and maybe deliver a better result in, in 2021. The additional possibility is if you have a new administration in the U.S., it would give that administration a chance to uh, exercise leadership and try to um, not only itself rejoin, but get other countries to do more. That would not have been possible if the COP was this year. So that's logistical. I think the second impact is more of a focus impact. It's really hard to, for, to ask countries to keep their attention on you know, updating, upgrading their NDCs when you've got a, a pandemic to worry about and economies crashing all over the place. So, you know, I, I think it's while 
the Secretary General of the UN, Executive Secretary of the UNFCCC, and others are, you know, continuing to say it would be great if you could, you know, pay attention to your NDC in 2020. I think, you know, realistically, I think it's understood that that, you know, that may not be a, a reasonable ask. Um, the third impact is substantive, right? So there's a lot of worry in the climate community that um, future NDCs and future climate action will be very much affected by how these recovery packages are, are designed. So I would say a lot of people who normally pay attention 100% to the international negotiations and process are putting their energy into what they're calling like building back better right, or, you know, looking at stimulus packages and trying to make sure that carbon intensive infrastructure is not part of it and that any rebuilding is done in kind of a Paris consistent way and you're not just going back to kind of business as usual. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how, how the NDCs come out after you take into account like whatever kind of stimulus packages are adopted this year or next year. It's always such a pleasure <laughs> to listen. <laughs> I learned so much um, because you're such an expert. And um, my next question, I think, is a little more abstract and, and tangible, but I think it's one that many of us ask ourselves. Um, you're, uh, what does it feel like to be an expert in a world that doesn't seem to respect uh, facts and knowledge like it could? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. I think I was with France actually at Yale a year or so ago when a student asked that that question. It really struck me. I had not thought about it before, and I, it got me thinking about how kind of demoralizing it must be to be in school, developing your knowledge and your expertise, and sort of seeing all around you the devaluing, if that's a word, devaluation of knowledge and expertise. Um, so it is something that I have thought about. Um, well, first of all, it's not universally the case that nobody cares about knowledge and expertise. I mean, I think it's just a, a slice of, um, of society and the political spectrum that sees it that way. Um, so you have to keep that in mind. But also, you, you can't just sort of give up and surrender to a factless knowledgeless way of looking at things. I think, you know, we all have a duty to keep putting accurate work out there and hope that it makes a difference, particularly over time, that we'll get back to a more fact-based approach to, um, to problem solving. One thing I try to do is, is to insist on accuracy, even on like, I would call it my own side. So in other words, if you're gonna criticize the other side or people who disagree with you, for not um, being accurate or fact-based, then you also have to be accurate yourself. So I'll just give you two examples that relate to what we were just talking about. So, you know, people are out there talking about this issue of 2020 and NDCs. And some will say parties to the Paris Agreement are required to update their NDCs in 2020. So I will sort of jump in if I have a, the opportunity and say, well, no, they're actually not required. It would be great if they did. There's a kind of a political expectation that they will, 
but it's not required, and we we should not be mischaracterizing, you know, what the agreement says. You know, the other thing people talk about is that 2020 is a deadline for updating NDCs, which it isn't. The parties are requested to put in their new NDCs or upgrade or you know recommunicate, but it's not a deadline. And in fact, it gives it's almost like a not only inaccurate, but it's kind of a negative to talk about it as a deadline because it almost suggests that if you don't do it in 2020, you're off the hook because you missed the deadline. So I mean, those are little examples, but I think it the pro climate action side also needs to uh, practice accuracy. Yeah. I Great answer. I, I've been kind of subscribing to the philosophy, especially these days, that everybody's right and everybody's wrong, and problems come when you only believe half of that statement. Right. Well, well put, Matt. <laughs> and actually, I think I think Matt was in that room with us when that question arose, and he may have even been the one back then to to have asked, <laughs> if I recall correctly. <laughs> But it's the responsibility of everyone to, to continue to provide accurate information and, and demand you know, that, that facts be respected and brought forward. But one thing that Matt and I are certain of, as we often quote the George Box phrase about models, that you know models are always incorrect, but some are useful, is that we, we don't have all the answers, nor do we have all the questions. So our last question really is, uh, what, what questions should we ask you? And do you have questions for us too? Well, let's see. I mean, maybe one question I could address is something that sometimes comes up, which is, um, you know, is the Paris Agreement a failure? I often see people saying that, well, the nationally determined contributions don't add up to a below two degree, you know, limitation on um, global temperature increase. And I'm not comfortable with people thinking that, right? I mean, Paris may end up being a failure. I hope not. But um, I think it's important to understand that everybody knew in 2015 that the first set of NDCs didn't add up to the ultimate temperature goal of the of the Paris Agreement. Um, that's why it was designed the way it was designed. In other words, it has a long-term temperature goal. Uh, you have NDCs being submitted every five years, and in between those submissions, you have a global stock take where you can kind of take a collective look at how well the world is doing in terms of the temperature uh, goal. And, you know, parties are supposed to go back and be informed by the global stock take when they submit their next set of NDCs. So it was always imagined that. Uh, you were going to have this long-term goal and then kind of this ambition cycle, if you could call it, um, where you would get increasingly kind of closer to the, the temperature goal. So I would say, of course, Paris would be a failure if you only had one set of NDCs and then the agreement stopped. You would say, well, how could that, how could that work if your only set of, of targets doesn't add up to your goal and then that's the end of the story? But that's not how it was designed. I actually think the design is a good one. It's um, what I call sort of the Goldilocks, right? It's uh, a little, it's not too hard, not too soft. It's, um, you know, got international rules in it, but it also has a lot of national flexibility. It's got differentiation. So not all parties are treated the same, but it's not done on a um, 
developed versus developing country basis. So it's got a lot of kind of hybrid approaches and kind of interesting approaches to issues that I think make the design a, a promising one. To the extent that Paris doesn't deliver, I think it's more a matter of political will or absence thereof than the design of the agreement. I mean, a, an agreement can't it, in and of itself create the necessary political will to, to mm -hmm. deliver. And I think Paris has you know, suffered from a couple gut punches <laughs> very early on, right? So it had gut punch number one was the U.S. walking away, which took some of the wind out of the sails. And now coronavirus, kind of a year later or so, yeah, I think you can't really look at the agreement and say, oh, <laughs> it's not doing enough. It's not, the, it's not the agreement that's not doing enough. It's countries that are not doing enough. And that's, <laughs> before corona, I would have said that's insufficient political will. And now it's kind of a, something beyond anyone's control. I guess the question for you guys who are doing so much on the ground to actually reduce emissions as opposed to the kind of airy-fairy stuff that I do at the 50,000-foot level, you know, how do you see the contribution of your types of um, activities to, to the global effort? You know, it seems, seems to me that the role of kind of non-state actors and companies has just gotten bigger and bigger over the last few years. Well, I, I think, yeah, to the, to the question of whether Paris is a failure, that's an amazing question to ask. And I don't think it's something that, uh, you know, the, the jury has come in on it, of course, but I think your, your re reflections there are, are really uh, insightful to, to realize and, and, and acknowledge, of course, that the, that it's on countries to, to step up and make it successful. And, you know, this this round of NDCs is, is big, uh, of course. But so, yeah, for, for us, I mean, thank you for, for asking. Um, we, you know, we are cranking away and trying to create tools that empower uh, local leaders all across the U.S. to create and uh, fund, build and run their own clean energy projects at the community scale. And I really come at this work with the, the idea that we need everybody involved if we're going to hit these these ambitious targets of uh, keeping warming below two degrees and, and making best efforts to keep it below 1.5. And our entire pitch deck and our entire business is built around that mission of trying to create the grassroots activism and involvement both on the investment side um, for for non-accredited individuals as well as accredited folks that want to put money into uh, green infrastructure um, and on the, um, the originator side of people uh, stepping up and taking responsibility on behalf of their community to say, yes, I'm going to create a company and I'm going to get it funded and, and build it because uh, we need more low carbon uh, clean energy sources and, um, and more inclusive capitalism. Um, so I'll, I'll let Matt answer as well, but um, that's what drives yeah. us. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think, uh, Sue, um, I think probably you're aware there's a disconnect between the, the global and the local. I mean, it's been a phrase for over 50 years, you know, think, think global, act local. And that's kind of, I think, what we're trying to actualize here. There's so many communities across the country that would love to deploy things like 
low carbon infrastructure and housing or alternative vehicle networks or solar. And there's frankly no capital for small projects. And I think a big challenge is how to direct the institutional capital that has committed to things like the Paris Agreement to actually invest in in these local projects that aren't getting funded. Because if we actually transition to a zero carbon economy, uh, but don't address any of the underlying economic disparity between who owns that infrastructure and who benefits from it, then it really is a missed opportunity. And I don't think it will actually solve kind of the main, main problems that we face. I think in order to actually do that, we need to have a solid framework on how small local projects can be verified and trusted by large institutions so that they can feel comfortable that this type of local asset could actually meet some of their commitments that they've made and do it in a way that, as Franz described, is kind of an inclusive capitalism approach. I think a lot of communities are trying to figure out how to rebuild after COVID has just decimated them. You know, 30, 40 million people unemployed. These jobs, a lot of these jobs aren't coming back. And so what are people going to do and how are they going to actually have self-determination in their local economic growth? Um, and I think connecting these global frameworks to local projects uh, with verifiable metrics is really kind of the missing piece uh, that we're trying to work on now. Wow. You guys are the heroes. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no, all politics is local, though. And, and you know, for us to build political will at the, the national and international level, it has to start with grassroots communities. And, and that's kind of the philosophy we take into the work at Raise Green. But it, it certainly does not uh, <laughs> does not um, amount to uh, anything in, unless there is this you know, well-directed and, and well-planned uh, framework and implementation plan um, at the at the higher levels of, you know, the, the top-down frameworks that are, are necessary to, to get everyone on the same page. So that is is critical. And uh, we we can't thank you enough for the tremendous work you've done over your career to, to get us into this place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to echo that. Uh, you know, politics is local, but inspiration is global. And, you know, billions of people around the world look at the Paris Agreement and, and use it in justifying their actions and career trajectories. And, and that's not a that's not a small thing um, at all. Um, I think we're kind of running up. We're a little over on time, Sue. That's well, a... thanks so much for having me um, and keep up the great work. <laughs> OK, noted. Yeah, well, thank you, Sue. It was it was a tremendous opportunity, and uh, we will keep you updated as the, the episode comes together. Yep. Um, thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot, thank guys. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Godspeed. Bye-bye. Even with all the challenges that the global climate framework has grappled with over the years, and that Sue and her brilliance has been in the middle of for the past 30 years, there is real reason to be hopeful, although time is running out. The science suggests that we have less than a decade to significantly shift the global economy away from high carbon emissions and towards the so-called net zero emissions and a climate resilient world. 
And that's ultimately what the Paris Agreement's all about, even though it's suffered some significant gut punches. Really, one main punch by our President Donald Trump announcing his intent to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. But we still have a chance to rejoin the fight once we get a new president. November 4th, 2020 is the first date that the U.S. will officially be out of the Paris Agreement, and also the first day that it could initiate its rejoining, although that wouldn't happen until a new president assumes office in January 2020, if Joe Biden defeats Donald Trump, that is. The next administration has to decide whether to re-enter the Paris Agreement. Trump has clearly said he won't, and Biden has clearly said he will. The real question is about the timing and substance of the United States re-entering the agreement. If the U.S. does rejoin, we need a new nationally determined contribution. If there is a Biden administration, that team would be the one to set up the new U.S. targets for emission reductions. But if the U.S. doesn't rejoin, there will be a credibility hole on the global policy stage, and that will be a power vacuum waiting to get filled by another country. And then there's the challenge of restoring U.S. credibility on the climate issue writ large, including di diplomacy in general. Trump has spurned and diminished our longtime U.S. allies and turned his back on the generational issue of climate change by calling it a hoax. So even a new Biden administration will have a lot to do to restore confidence in our ability to act effectively. U.S. has an opportunity to use its accumulated power and influence in the 20th century to get other countries to step up in the 21st. With COP26 in Glasgow being canceled by COVID, or at least postponed a year, there may be an unexpected opportunity for that step up to happen if the U.S. re-enters the agreement with a strong climate target by next fall and institutes an ambitious climate plan domestically and uses its diplomatic might to goad others along. As each country prepares to submit an updated nationally determined contribution, countries must lean on each other and build trust. They are not required to update or increase the ambition of their plan just to restate it and update it. But if they don't increase the ambition, we may run out of time to flatten the climate curve and make the reductions necessary to avoid runaway global warming. With all the ruckus about the U.S. influence, it's important to remember that anti-Paris sentiment is just one small slice of the political spectrum. 196 other countries are implementing the Paris Agreement every day. And they must if we're going to hit a global goal of a climate safe future. We have a duty to follow the science. We have a duty to put fact-based work back to work and build back better from the recent economic shocks of a runaway global pandemic while tackling climate change in an equitable way. We cannot give up or surrender. And really, it's all about political will. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you later, Franz.